Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What? My guest today is a returning guest. And last time he was on, we talked about Vikings in the Byzantine Empire and the Varangian Guard. And you actually suggested to talk about this topic, and what we drove to talk about the first, the third, the Byzantine Emperor before Alexius Conemnus. And why do you suggest this this guy this guy to t- talk about today? Hello, um, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, so, Nicephorus the third is a little bit of a enigma in that um, he is very much sandwiched between two very important emperors, which also symbolize two very different things. You have Michael VII, who is infamous for losing Anatolia to the Turks. He's also got rebellions and uh, the economy is collapsing and all of this kind of thing. So the empire at its very worst. And then you have Alexis I, who slowly throughout his reign after beating off all of the different uh, invaders such as the Normans, Pechenegs and Turks, is able to bring the crisis that the empire was in to to an end uh, and also had to deal with the First Crusade and and also sets up uh, how the empire operates for the next, uh, next few centuries to come. And if you're interested, we did an episode on Alexios Tonemnus in episode 23, which I highly recommend checking out. Mm. And so Nikiforos III is sandwiched in between these two. And uh, so 11th century Byzantine history is something I was quite captivated by because of people like Alexis I and Basil II. And uh, just the, it's a very interesting period, not just for by uh, the Byzantines, but also uh, for Europe in general. It's the time of the First Crusade. It's the time of people like El Cid in Spain, of the uh, last uh, major Scandinavian invasion of England and William the Conqueror um, and all of these kinds of things. So, um, Is this when they started to see the Normans as a threat to the Byzantine Empire? Yes, yes. This is where the Normans take over Italy, uh, southern Italy, that is, and then start invading Greece, Mm. um, trying to actually capture what's left of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, And you also get a a few Norman adventurers in Anatolia as well, uh, which we can come to. But uh, Nikiforos III... He is quite interesting in that throughout this entire century, pretty much, uh, he was alive at this time. And 
for 30 years from 1053 to uh, 1081 when he died, uh, we have a, 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 a fairly an outline of what he was doing and where he was going and what he was involved with. And he was involved with quite a lot of the conflicts of the empire during this very difficult time. And eventually he is the one that becomes emperor. And one of the key historians for the periods, a man called Michael Italiates, he devoted a big portion of his history to Nikiforos III. Mm. Um, so actually we know quite a lot more about him than some of the more uh, short-reigned emperors of the period. Uh, but he is... But, st- but still, though, that's when, I, when you... When he when is you, kind of yeah. completely forgotten about. When you, yeah, um, yeah, I wanted to say that when you suggested we talk about him and try to find sources about him, both mm-hmm. on YouTube and every doodle, and try to find sources, but there's not too many sources. It's kind of overlooked, in a sense. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I would say that my research on him is ongoing. But um, I have been investigating uh, this emperor just to um, bring some of these facets about him uh, a bit more to the fore and make them a bit more accessible without having to uh, dive into all of the different primary sources that you can uh, find about him and try and patch it together. So I've been doing that myself over the last few years. and yeah, and I thought this was a great opportunity to try and uh, talk about him a bit and um, give a rough idea of what this man was about. Mm. And he is quite an interesting fellow in uh, his own way. Um, and his reign, there are things about his reign which are quite interesting and um, uh, still some things I'm still cogitating about, but um, yeah. So, how, where does he come from? What what is this? How does he? We can talk about how he managed to come up in the ranks and where he come from in the beginning. So, um, unfortunately, the first almost fifty years of his life, we know f- almost nothing about. But we know some. Gen- so we know he was born in a place called Lampi in uh, the province of the Anatolicon theme. This is in Anatolia. He was a member of a military uh, aristocratic family. He was the son of a man called Michael Botaniates, uh, and his grandfather was Theophylact Botaniates. And these two men were of some importance during the reign of Basil II. Uh, Fioflact, he was in command of uh, the city of Thessalonica during the Bulgar Wars of Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer. Uh, and Fioflact won a decisive victory at Thessalonica um, from what we can tell with, uh, despite being outnumbered, um, just before the 
even more decisive battle of Clydion, where Basil defeated the Bulgarian Tsar, Samuel, uh, at the Battle of Clydion. And between these two victories by Theophylact and Basil, the Bulgarian, it's a big turning point in the war against Bulgaria. So they're now on the offensive. And although the war doesn't come to end immediately, um, it is um, four years on, the war does come to an end. Um, I think to make uh, perhaps a comparison battle in terms of it's a little bit like the Battle of El Alamein in that it was a turning point of the war starting to swing towards the Byzantines rather than the Bulgarians. And this war had been waging for over 20 years by this point. So, mm. uh, And Michael, uh, so Theophylact was later killed that same year in a, man, in a Bulgarian ambush. And his son Michael... Uh, although the details aren't very clear, he was also at the Battle of Thessalonica, and he later participated in Basil II's war against the Georgians in 20, uh, 1021 to 1022. And then he disappears from the historical record. Uh, and so Nikephoros, uh, he was the son of Michael. So he's... Uh, two immediate ancestors were um, fairly accomplished military commanders. And we know that from an early age, uh, Nikephoros himself was a soldier. But he doesn't really seem to have come to any sort of prominence until 1053, which is the first time he's mentioned in our written sources. So it wasn't like Justin didn't rise from poverty into become an emperor who was already, already had family inside, who mm. was had military careers. Yeah. He would he would be a member of what's called the Dinatoi, which is the military aristocracy of the Byzantine Empire mm. at the time. Uh, these would have been sort of military pedigree families that own some land. Uh, in the provinces and sort of more regularly provided the military upper, the upper echelons of the military. Uh, but his, fa- his family, although there are indications that it had been around uh, since the, as early as the 6th century, so 500 years earlier, um, Theophylact is the first member of his family to sort of actually make it in to written sources. So um, his grandfather seems to have been the person to actually catapult his family into some sort of prominence beyond um, local, uh, beyond his locality. And we thought, I wanted to ask about this because we talked about the state of the Byzantine army in the Tonemnus episode and what was it like during this, his time, during Nicephorus when he joined the military? What was the state of the Byzantine army? Because when Alexius and the Crusaders comes, the Byzantine army is quite bad, as mm. you've learned. But how, yeah. what is it like during this age? It's, it's, really, it's really a tipping point at this period. Uh, so at the beginning 
of Nikephoros's life. The Byzantine army is right at the top of its game, so to speak. It's it's able to. Uh, it does have defeats. Uh, for instance, it was heavily defeated in the expedition against Sicily in uh, 1038 to 1041. But uh, it's also responsible for the conquest of Armenia, the conquest of Bulgaria. Um, They're pushing into Syria at the time, uh, southern Italy. And although there are defeats, generally the Byzantine army under good leadership is able to defeat any of its uh, rivals. However, this is right where the tipping point happens, and this is why the 11th century turns into such a major uh, military crisis, in that in southern Italy, you have the arrival of the Normans, which are a serious threat, because the Normans are, they have very good heavy cavalry. Uh, the Battle of Hastings, you have uh, the famous Norman knights, uh, and these are the same sort of knights fighting the Byzantines in Italy. Uh, you have the Pechenegs, which is a Turkic horde. They arrive on the Danube, and uh, they are fought to a pretty much a stalemate in that region. And also another Turkic horde called the Azers uh, or Augus um, turn up uh, in the 1060s, which. Um, which we'll come to because that involves uh, Nikephoros. So, and also in the east, although you have the uh, some conflicts with the Fatimids of Egypt and the Arabs of Aleppo, uh, you also have the arrival of the Turks with their horse archers. Um, I believe it's the so Bayezid for a long period. Uh, hold on. Uh, for, for a prolonged periods from the sort of 1040s, 1050s, right up until the 1080s and 1090s, uh, the Byzantine Empire is fighting wars sometimes at, uh, simultaneously on three fronts um, and often almost in constant warfare around it. Plus you have internal revolts and civil wars like the one between Isaac I and Michael VI in 1057. Uh, uh, and uh, in the 1060s, you have uh, the Emperor Constantine X t- undertakes measures to defund and also, also partially demobilize uh, sections of the army. So not only is the military pressure on the frontiers increasing, but you also have um, emperors, one or two of them, uh, decreasing the military capabilities of the empire. Uh, so by, uh, by the time Romanus IV becomes emperor in 1068, there's a very um, famous passage from the history of Michael Italiates, where he says that um, uh, Romanus IV, he entered the province and he summoned the Tagmata and Thamata troops of the Anatolicon theme 
and before him he he saw uh, men with tattered banners or soldiers without their armor and sort of farm implements rather than spears and swords and it, it just uh, just and then he sort of laments at how far the legions of Rome have fallen sort of thing so were they barbarians in their eyes so to speak uh Anatolicon yeah uh, no Anatolicon is a province a theme uh, in the Byzantine Empire, so mm. this would be native soldiers. Mm. Um, but did the did the Byzantine at this time have allies like the Rome Romans had, like mm. ally? Uh, they did. So they did employ some mercenaries. This shouldn't be overstated because the mercenaries formed a contingent of the army and not the army itself um so for instance when uh the uh expedition to sicily you do have the varangian guard and also uh some norman mercenaries but the rest of the army is made up of troops from the provinces of obsicion anatolicon Phrixion, and so on um, so there are some mercenaries. Um, uh, the Aleppans are kind of allies, but kind of not. They're a client state. But because of the situation in the East, they sort of switch sides a bit and it all goes a bit hairy over there. Um, the Georgians help them out sometimes. In the 1070s, uh, Michael the Seventh gets the uh, hands over some Caucasian territory in exchange for some soldiers, um, about six thousand. So the they are using allies when they can, and also in Italy, uh, uh, the Byzantines start working with the Pope against the Normans because the Normans are also attacking papal territories but um i would say largely Zantines are relying on their own resources in this period and how does major forest the third excel in the army when he when the first joined is his um, is his family still in the army or are they retired at this point does it follow uh, well theophylax was uh died in 1014 and michael mm. i assume he retired because he just disappears after 1022 and is never mentioned again. Um, but so we should probably, uh, in this context, we'll probably come to um, Nicky Forrester's first mention. So when the Pechenegs attacked, uh, they attack across the Danube and uh, Constantine the Ninth has to try and deal with them. And this conflict goes on for a few years. And then in 1053, there is an expedition launched against what has become the Pechenegs' main uh, fortress, uh, Preslav, in the northern, uh, in the nor- northeastern Balkans. And uh, the army lay siege to Preslav 
but then there's disagreements between the two commanders and eventually during the night the army decides to withdraw and the the leader of the Pechenegs, a man called Tyrak, he finds out that this is happening and he ambushes the army and it's a complete disaster. A lot of troops are killed. The rest of the army is scattered. However, uh, Nikiforus Botaniates, uh, that's his surname, he is able to rally his cavalry contingent and he manages to extricate his forces during the night out of this ambush. Uh, and this is despite the Pechenegs attacking his forces and he deploys mm-hmm. scouts and he manages to get his cavalrymen out of that situation. And then for the next 11 days, despite them being constantly attacked by the Pechenegs and the, their horses being shot from under, under them, so they're now proceeding on foot, the Roman soldiers and uh, Nikiforus are able to march from Preslav uh, right down to... Adrianople, which is uh, quite a long way, several months, um, tens. Uh, I don't remember the exact distance, maybe over dozens of miles, mm. let's say, um, under attack, uh, uh, which is, seems to be the um, military feat that catapults Nikiforos into. Um, greater prominence because the next time we see him uh, he is and actually involved in a historical event uh, he is well known enough that what the Frankish mercenary captain uh, of Michael VI challenges him at the Battle of Hades Polemon and this is the big battle between uh, the forces of Isaac Komnemnos and Michael the Sixth. Just so the um, listeners are aware that Adrianople today is Adrian. Yes, yes. That is, uh, so Adrianople is this now in modern Turkey. It's mm-hmm. a little portion of land that uh, the Turks own in Europe. And Preslav is in modern Bulgaria. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, it's a phenomenal feat, this. um, I feel like if he was around today, he'd get a Victoria Cross or something. But Mm. um, he, uh, yeah, he he managed to, I mean, there was a complete, the rest of this campaign was a complete disaster. And it leads uh, to the agreement between the emperor and the Pechenegs that they will, they make peace and the Pechenegs become a, the uh, uh, Foderati, so they are official allies of the Romans, and they're allowed mm. to settle around Preslav in that in that area of the Balkans. No, and I'm... they remained there for uh, until the reign of Alexis the First, when he finally manages to subdue them. Um, no. Yeah, well, that's quite a bit later. Uh, so yeah, so. And that's the thing about Nikiforos III. A lot of what we know before he became emperor are uh, he shows up in battles, but mm. they're often defeats. Um, I think the only battle he 
that is talked about where he is victorious isn't is uh in a civil war as well so um you have this and a lot of a lot of this information seems to be picked by the historian Michael Taliati. So it's kind of victory from the jaws of defeat. It's um, there's a lot of subtleties, which a historian called um, uh, Demetrius Corrales has talked about um, in more detail. But um, so yeah, he managed to have a managed well it wasn't so much a victory but he managed to um accomplish this big military well not big but impressive military maneuver despite all of this um defeat around him and after that he is uh promoted uh he's promoted to the rank of magistrate so uh which is a uh rank up in the uh, honors of the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. Now, I want, but it's something I want to ask when he does join a military because in I want to compare to the Roman army again because in the Roman army, if you wanted to become a centurion, you had to be from upper class family, or you know have some money to to be able to join the ranks of leading. If you were a commoner, you had no chance. What was elect nature first the third state like? Did he? Join like and what was this in like in the Byzantine army? Did they join as a general sort of centurion's role, or did he just join as a common soldier at this point when he started the journey? It's not all that clear what rank he held, um, because he was he wasn't a in ten fifty three. It doesn't look like. He was a governor of anywhere, but that just might be the sources. Um, so he, he was clearly an officer because he was in command of a section of the army, but he, um, difficult to say. But what we do know is that after this, um, he does very much remain a a uh, what's called a strategos or uh, sometimes a uh, doe or duke as it's anglicized uh, which would be a governor and also commander of a province and the troops in it so um, and he throughout the next decades from 1057 until his revolt in 1077, he holds a number of governorships, uh, so Stratigos, though, of a whole number of different provinces. So uh, just to name a few, he is the uh, governor of the Opsicion theme, which, uh, so that's in Anatolia. Uh, he is the governor of Antioch and Edessa for a period from 1059 to 61. Uh, he's the governor of Cyprus for a t- time, uh, he's a governor of Antioch again uh, for a period. He's a governor of Thessalonica in uh, Greece, uh, the Peloponnese, um, a place called uh, uh, a place called um, Voloron and Strymon. So that's in the sort of central Balkans. 
he is the governor of uh, Paristrion, which is a, the cities along the Danube. And while he's there, he is defeated. He leads the army against a horde, so like a, another Turkic horde called the Oguz, which break into uh, the Danube. And his army, uh, while he's defending against them, is defeated and he is captured. But later he manages to escape with his co-general man called um, Basil Apokapes. Uh, and they manage to get out. But um, so again, you have this sort of good from bad uh, thing that's going on and the sources and he also uh so as governor of antioch he was had to face against the turks and this ties back into there's a good instance to tie back into what we was talking about with the military decline of the period so while he's governor of antioch for a second time um in 10 in 10 uh, 67 to 8 uh, Constantine the tenth raises troops to help Nikiforus in Antioch, and first the first set of troops he raised he only pays them half of the amount that they're supposed to get. So, um, which they take and then go home because they haven't been play, uh, paid properly. And then when Constantine dies and his wife takes over the uh, control of the empire uh, she sends um, ca- uh, cavalry recruits to Nikiforus to help defend Antioch from the Arabs in Aleppo and also the Turks which are attacking the area and this doesn't go so well because the recruits turn up and they're not prop. They're not properly trained. They're not properly equipped. Uh, and some of them don't even know how to ride a horse properly. So mm-hmm. Nikki Forrest is in a really big, a lot of trouble. And he really, he tries to use these recruits as best as he can. And he is also relying on his own personal retainers. Uh, yeah. So the people around him and also he, recruits local troops from around Antioch uh, and successfully manages to defend Antioch from the Arabs and Turks. But eventually he just has to disband these cavalrymen he's been sent because, uh, or because they're, they're quickly whittled down and they're not much use. So he eventually just gets rid of them. Um, so the Byzantine military is in a really terrible state for some places um, uh, which means that you have people like Nicky Force who are really struggling to cope with the military threats to the empire um, but they are still able to in some areas uh, so places like Antioch under good leadership uh, with people like Nikki Force, the Taniyati is in charge. They are able to hold the line just. But then you also have other places like in Armenia, where you have 
uh, the capital of the region, Annie, gets sacked by the Turks, partially because of infighting between the two commanders of the city. Uh, the garrison has really low morale because of this infighting. And also there have been all of these military changes to try and uh, make more money, um, which yeah. ties into the government struggling to pay for everything. Um, Are they headed towards bankruptcy again, the, the government? Uh, yes, so uh, uh, the government, in this period, the government, to try and help pay for everything, is also debasing the currency. So the amount of... Uh, so in the gold coin, the nomisma, the actual amount of gold in it, which gives it its value, uh, is going down. Um, which means the money is worth less, which means people are not quite as confident in the money that they're using, mm. which means prices go up because it's not worth as much. Uh, so... Things aren't going so well, but that's also contrasted by the fact that in this same, not necessarily in the 1060s and 70s, but earlier in the 1030s, 1040s, and even as late as 1059, uh, there's evidence that, uh, quite a bit of evidence, that the economy was growing exponentially. Um, in Greece, houses and churches were being built, which means more people. More people means more people to Uh, farm the land and fulfill jobs and so on. Um, there are there's a will by a man called Eustathius Bolias who is um, he goes into a place uh, called Dessa in Syria and he finds this wilderness and pretty and on his own initiative he manages to turn this wilderness into a productive farmland with different types of crops being grown and gardens and windmills and so on. Now, mills. I want to go back to Antioch for a bit, because mm. as you know, they lose Antioch eventually to the Turks. In 1082. Yeah. yeah, so this is not the time when they lose Antioch. No. And they're only to first and third. Ironically, the, the Byzantines technically hold Antioch longer than they did for most of Anatolia. Um, because uh, this comes back to the nature of the Turkish advance. So, um, and the Battle of Manzikert, which uh, I will mention a short instance by Nikiforis because he, he does enter into that story slightly. Um, so after Romanus IV becomes emperor, it seems to me that he sacked Nikiforus Botaniates because Nikiforus was one of the candidates to become emperor when um, the empress, a woman called Eudocia Macrimbolatissa, was looking for a new husband to take control of the empire and win and sort out the military crisis on the frontiers, especially in the East. And Nikiforos was one of those candidates. His rival, uh, Romanus, got the job. And so it looks like he was sacked because uh, there's a period where he doesn't seem to have had any command. And then he was promoted and then moved into the Balkans, out the way. 
And then in 1071, when Romanus IV has his Manzikert campaign, uh, Nikephorus is actually with his army for some of it until they reach the place in Anatolia called the Sangarius River. And then Romanus uh, dismisses parts of his army. Some of his soldiers he dismisses because he doesn't, he can't rely on their uh, ability, which is fair enough. Uh, and some of the officers he dismisses because there is mention that they were, or at least a suspicion of, a plot against him. And the person named in that plot is Nikiforus Botaniates. Whether, I mean, whether the plot was actually true or not is um, uh, not clear, but... Um, so Nikephorus is sent away, and then uh, Romanus loses at the Battle of Manzikert. And then so um, one of the significance of this is that he went to try and secure that area along the frontier in Armenia. And with him gone, and also the army dispersed, the Turks were able to enter into that corridor uh, between uh, there was like a pale of territory in northern Anatolia centered around Trebizond. Uh, and then you've got this other section of territory stretching down from uh, Antioch right up to Armenia. And then you have this hole, which was supposed to have been plugged up with the um, with Romanus securing Manzikert. But with him gone... Then you have Turkish war bands that are able to penetrate into Anatolia uh, without much resistance. Um, and thereby you have the, uh, the entering of the Turks into Anatolia. So let's and turn. Then, yeah. And then places like Syria, they still have the organizational and military setup still in place. So you don't have a whole. They're still able to muster local recruits and also some of the forces that had been involved with Manzikert end up in uh, that region around Antioch uh, so several of the Tagmata Eastern Tagmata regiments end up there and they stay there as well so this leads into um, local Armenian um, strong men taking control of the uh, that area eventually um, and sort of going their own way because they've been cut off from the empire. Now let's talk about how Nikephorus comes to power. We talked about his parade before he comes to power and how he's got military and he is quite experienced in governing since he managed to be a governor so many places. So he does political experience. Does yeah. And, and as I mentioned, the, in the previous emperor's wife, sorry, I don't remember her name for, uh, for now, but Yatokia, so is looking for a new husband. And is, is this simply how he became emperor, or is there more to it? No, so there's a little bit more to the story for Nikephorus before he comes emperor. So, um, ooh, I, may, I may as well mention a little bit of trivia about Romanus just before we move on in that. Um, so I think I think um, during 
the Emperor Isaac Komnenos's Hungarian campaign. While he's on that campaign, there's mentioned that Nikiforos Botaniates saved the life of Romanus IV, the uh, future emperor, on that campaign, which is um, interesting. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's just a little bit of trivia. But um, so the Turks are in Anatolia, and things, goes, things go horribly wrong when a Norman adventurer called Roussel rebels and strikes out on his own. And he seizes control of a portion of Anatolia for himself. And uh, in the wisdom of Michael VII, he decides to devote all of his military resources to taking out this Norman adventurer, eventually even employing the Turks to do so for him. Uh, and at the beginning of this, um, in 1074, uh, Michael VII sends an army under the command of his uncle, uh, a man called Caesar John, and, and the most important general in the empire, uh, the newly promoted Kurapalates, which and a Kurapalates was a general who was really high up in the honours of the empire is a very important title. And this had been granted to Nikiforos Botaniates, um, which may give some credence to the fact that Romanus was a very bit, was very suspicious of him. But anyway, um, so Nikiforos and John, they were sent out with an army of uh, Varangian Guard, uh, some Frankish mercenaries, and also uh, native forces from uh, Cappadocia, Anatolicon, and Opsicion themes. So local, uh, local troops. And they arrive at the Sangarius River, which we've mentioned, and at, a, at the Battle of the Zompos Bridge, uh, John advances across the bridge, but it's slippery, which means his men have trouble crossing and affects their fighting. And during the battle, John's, uh, the Franks in John's army defect to the Normans. And then at this point, Nikiforos decides to abandon John. And he takes the remaining rear guards, which would have consisted of the native troops, and he goes to his native province in Anatolikon. Uh, John is captured. Uh, the rest of us is a defeat, and uh, eventually this Norman mercenary is defeated by Michael the Seventh uh, by Alexius Comnenus. But uh, Nikiforus he goes to Anatolikon and he is placed in charge of the defences of the province. And while he's there uh, for the next three years, he seems to have done a relatively decent job in the fact that. He is still there three years later, but three years later, he's really struggling. Of the forces he had, uh, the Turks are starting to overrun the area, and it's said that when he would try to muster troops uh, to defend against them, uh, the some of a lot of soldiers were so scared of the Turks that they didn't dare leave the towns and cities they were in. 
How how was this viewed by the generals? Was it was this a sign of desertion or was it? Um, well, from at least from Nicky Force's perspective, which I think we can get a little bit because he sent a letter to uh, Michael, basically begging him to do something about this, and his responses are somewhat coarse. Um, or at least that's the gist of it and uh, we're told about um, that genuine concern over the military um, situation in Anatolia and the lack of the of ability for the government to do anything about it which leads to the revolt of Nicky Forrest III in October uh, either the 1st or 2nd of October 1077. Uh, he proclaims himself emperor. He takes what troops he can uh, from the Anatolicon, which roughly turn out to be 300-ish men, so very small. Uh, but he gains a lot of support, which is interesting. A uh, lot of aristocrats in the eastern uh, provinces of Anatolica um, Anatolia declare their support for him and he has to navigate through all of these Turkish war bands to uh, Nicaea. Now, you, men- you mentioned that we've talked about how the, most of the battles he does in his early days he loses, but is he, is he a general or is he gener- generally now, does it does it fail as a general too? I think it's the odd thing of he's he clearly has ability because from his uh, governorships they're very short, but also he goes in and sort of sorts them out, and then is sent somewhere else. So he's one of these people that can sort out a situation. And this happens a few times, so like when he's governor of Thessalonica and governor of uh, Cyprus and Antioch. Um, so he clearly has ability. Uh, and he has, he has military capabilities as well. Um, but whenever we hear about him, he's always being defeated. So which could be a very tailored version of his career before he became emperor. Unfortunately, we don't know the rest of the facts. The only independent information about his career from a different written source is about the Battle of Hades Polymon. But in that, we get uh, he is in a duel and he wins the duel. So... uh, he was clearly a good fighter, um, if not if not always the most successful general. So it's a bit difficult. He's a an odd one, I'd say. So, so how does how does this battle go when it takes arms? A uh, pardon? How does the battle go when it takes arms against the as an emperor and a general? He so Michael. Uh, the emperor he rebels against is 
uh, desperately tries to uh, defeat him. He tries to get the Turks to take him out. He also has a rebellion in the Balkans by another Nikiforos, a man called Bryennios. So he's got two rebellions. He's completely out of money. And he tries to get the Turks to take out Nikiforos Potaniates. But Nikiforos, um, he has a Turk in his retinue who persuades the Turks to join him instead. And so they get Turkish support. Um, and he occupies Nicomedia, uh, not Nicomedia, Nicaea, sorry. And uh, basically, by the uh, 24th of March, uh, 24th? By the, no, where's the uh, One moment. Numbers. The 24th of March, yes, uh, 1078, there is a coup in Constantinople by uh, the Senate proclaims Nikiforos emperor. The church and patriarch also support him, and also the people in the city riot and occupy the imperial palace. And then in the following uh, following days, Michael abdicates and becomes a monk. Uh, and Nikiforos is welcomed into Constantinople and crowned emperor on the 3rd of April, uh, 1078, with his wife, a woman called Bebdine. But she dies shortly after this. And so Nikiforos um, tries to marry Eudokia, the empress Eudokia, uh, but he is blocked because it would be breaking canonical law. Uh, so, thought about um, Vegas talkbooking. Pardon? Thought about the Vegas talkbooking. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Um, so, uh, there's a there's a reason why this marriage didn't happen. Although it did make a lot of sense because she, although the male line of the uh, Ducas family, those um, Michael and Constantine the tenth. Uh, have been discredited for all of these disasters under their reigns. Uh, the female line of, so their wives, uh, Eudokia, Macrimbola, Tessa, and Maria of Alania, were still good. So, and they were, they were the only link to the previous dynasty. And of course, Nikiforos had absolutely no legitimacy at all. He was just a general. So he desperately needed to get some sort of link or dynastic link so um and eudokio had at least the experience of actually having ruled the empire for a year in 1070 uh 1067 to 8 so good candidate uh she couldn't marry him because she had already been married twice and to be married a third time was uncanonical but not impossible I just but thought child wasn't the charm this time. Uh, yes. Uh, so this is all to do with church law. But she'd also made a promise to her, uh, her dead husband, Constantine X, never to remarry after him. Uh, and although she'd gotten away with it once, uh, she wasn't able to get away with it a second time. Mm. And Nikiforos, uh, his wife had already 
had died. So this would be a second marriage for him, which was um, still allowable, but um, the idea was you're only supposed to have one. So I mean, it, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. I mean, as an emperor, you'd kind of need to have a wife, though, to produce yeah. a heir to, to the empire. Hmm. Fortunately, there were two Ducas emperors, so he married Maria of Alania instead, which, which was also sort of frowned upon because she had been forced to divorce her husband, Michael VII, because he had become a monk. Hmm. Uh, so there was a bit, little bit of um, mystery over how legal this marriage was because was she technically still married to Michael? Yeah. Um, hence the... Uh, so his marriage was not exactly canonical, but if he could provide some sort of military solution to the Empire's problems, um, so be it. Mm-hmm. And, and very interestingly, um, although he didn't marry the Empress Eudokia, he placed her in charge of three government ministries, which is quite interesting. Um, that's the last was there, a, was there a strategic reason behind this? Or was it just you felt sorry um, for her in a sense? I don't know. I, I do wonder if it was just simply because he wanted, well, one, he wanted to be conciliatory to the Ducas family which is, makes sense because he also kept around the brother of Michael uh, the seventh, Constantius Ducas. Uh, and it may also be because she knew what she was doing. Um, she seems to, uh, during her year in power and also during the reign of my, uh, Romanus IV, she seems to have been uh, in charge of a lot of administrative things. And uh, the historian Michael Sellis also mentions how um, she was quite adept at her role as uh, ruler. So it may have been for practical reasons that the empire, uh, not only militarily, but also economically and administratively, was in a real real mess. And Nicky Forrest needed these experienced people to run the government. Uh, because Nicky Forrest, although he was a soldier and a governor, uh, he wasn't that well educated. Um, based on his seals that survive, he couldn't even spell his own name properly. He kept Ooh. spelling it with um, a. So in Greek, there's two E's. And um, to spell Nicky Forrest, it's sort of Nicky Four E. So you'd use a. Um, Epsilon, but he would always he would always spell it with a eater, so the short e, so Nikifore, uh, which was wrong. Um, so um, he really needed these people, and he brings a lot of the people back who had been in Michael's administration, but who had been elbowed aside by Michael's chief eunuch uh, Nikiforitsis. They're all called Nikiforis in this period. Um, Creative. Yes. Although Nikiforis uh, gets his comeuppance because he's tortured to death. Um, 
So, mm. no, he probably deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so he brings all of these people back, and he also Nikephoros heavily relies on his two slaves, Boreal and Germanos, um, to run things. Um, so he sets himself up in Constantinople, and although he reigns for three years, uh, Nikephoros is beset has a huge number of rebellions and coups against him. It's really quite staggering. He, so the first rebellion he has to deal with is the other Nikiforos in the Balkans uh, because he becomes emperor and then Nikiforos Baranios refuses to recognize him and he still harbors his imperial ambitions. So Nikiforos appoints Alexios Komnemnus uh, at the head of what's left of the uh, army and they defeat the uh, forces of Bryennios. And then, later that year, in 1078, there's another rebellion by a man called Nikephoros Basileikis, which, again, Alexios is sent out and defeats. Um, so that's two usurpers. Yeah. Uh, then in the Balkans, there is a rebellion by a group called the Paulicians, led by a man called Lekker and another man called Drobomir. And they try and get the Pechenegs to actually join in their rebellion. But uh, after Nikiforus starts to assemble the army to take to deal with them, they and they fail to get the support of the Pechenegs, they throw themselves at his mercy. And he actually does um, pardon them and give them amnesty. And actually, that's a feature of Nikephoros' reign, that most of the people that are involved in these rebellions, he gives amnesty to and tries to uh, accommodate them. Although um, Brianus is blinded. Uh, but that gets blamed on his slaves rather than him. So... Um, now, as we as we all know by now, Alexius eventually ends up taking arms against Nikephoros. But let's talk about what led up to this and what is it like as an emperor, Nikephoros himself. Hmm. So Nikephoros did uh, have several initiatives during his reign. Um, so Nikephoros had a number of crises to deal with, not only rebellions, which there were more of as well. Uh, there was a coup by the Varangian guard to try and murder him, uh, which uh, there's a story of how he was uh, during a parade. They were drunk and tried to kill him. And then he managed to hold them off with his uh, staff around him as well on the Imperial balcony and uh, eventually until other Imperial bodyguards arrive. So again, you have this Nikiforos, the warrior, um, still coming through but yeah. um there's another rebellion uh later on but we'll get to that so uh what about his how many rebellions is there his internal initiatives so unfortunately um there was no real solution to the economic crisis so things get a lot worse before they get better but um, so the government under Michael VII had done things to try and 
relieve their finances. So they had actually confiscated yeah. uh, local jetties around Constantinople. And Nikiforos handed these back to them. He also, um, uh, Nikiforos also forgave all public debt. So all of the debt was written off. Um, was this a good idea on paper or was um, it a bad idea practically or was it, how was it, it seems, received? It seems like it was because... Is that it was um, a bad idea or good idea? There seems to have been a problem with debt and the um, historian Michael Taliates talks about how it gave everyone freedom from debt. And I suppose that does make sense for a lot of people because a lot of them, a lot of refugees from Anatolia were in, had fled to the West. And there was a real problem of um, feeding all of them. There were lots of shortages. And I think some of the initiatives that Nikki Forrest did economically were to benefit and try and um, resolve this uh, crisis of refugees. As, um, so he's given the jetties back. He forgives debt. He uh, he also hands out he hands out money and uh, court titles like no emperor has done before. In fact, there's a little story where the person that announces new titles and honors loses his voice because there's so many um, he has to go through. So, um, and we can see there is a, there is this um, flood of refugees and so on at the beginning of Nikiforos's reign. And they seem to have disappeared by the time Alexios takes power. And uh, that... I don't, I'm not saying that there weren't still refugees and such, but um, the immediate issue of shortages and sort of public uh, misery because of this seems to have been solved. So the short-term crisis seems to have been alleviated. Doesn't, um, doesn't it refer during his reign lose a lot of land from Byzantine as well? Um, yeah. Well, yes or no. Um, so Michael VII lost most of Anatolia hmm. uh, by his reign. And, uh, and I was, I suppose the revolt of Nikephorus, um, he lo- as soon as he marches out of Anatolicon, it disappears from uh, being in Roman possession. Because I seem to remember when he talked about Alexius that there wasn't much Byzantine of the Byzantines no. empire left well, a lot by, of the by empire, his time. It's, uh, the in, it's in the process of still crumbling at this point. In fact, Nikephorus does, in the second year of his reign, he does launch a... He organises an offensive to try and drive out the Turks, but the army he assembles... Uh, isn't confident enough. His morale is very low. And so he brings more troops over from the West to bolster the forces. But uh, these are commanded by Constantius Ducas, who, as I mentioned, was the brother of Michael VII. And he takes the opportunity to have the soldiers proclaim him emperor. And 
they do so, but Nikiforos is able to persuade the army to hand him over in exchange for an amnesty, and they do so. So, uh, but Nikiforos is uh, calls off the expedition. So he does attempt to try and reverse the situation, but uh, from political instability and military, the lack of military morale and confidence, um, his efforts are hamstrung. And in fact, there won't be an army to campaign in Anatolia for uh, quite some time until the 1090s under Alexis I. Mm. And there seem to be quite, you mentioned a few rebellions, and there seem to be quite a few rebellions under Nikephoros' reign as well. I think I count there are, I think there are seven in total, coups and revolts and so on. And that, so, that includes Alexis's own rebellion. So basically, if you lived in that time, you should have a drink again, take a drink every time there was a rebellion. Yeah, you'd, uh, you'd have a good time. Yeah. Um, Is it that bad of a leader, though, since there seemed to be quite a lot of revolts against him? I, I don't think... I don't think revolt should necessarily reflect on how good he was as a leader. And he, and there are definitely signs that he is trying to sort out the situation. So, um, Is it just a, so a, to try they and, want power from the self? Do you, so I was just thinking about, so with the economic situation, what he tries to do is because of the devaluation of the money, he revises the tax, tax registers and uh, 1079 and there's uh so we have one instance where the tax register tax registers of a monastery which had been paying 46 nomisma per year um was revised up to 79 which is quite a bit of a jump um what's that that's, that's 20 no, 30 33 extra nomisma, which kind of gives you an idea of how much the economy had inflated yeah. by this point. And in fact, the, those tax registers That's that about the business Kiforos or... made had to be revised again by the time mm-hmm. Alexios became emperor, because again, you had the inflation. Uh, inflation had gone up so much by that point that the old registers were out of date. But that's the th- thing about the Byzantines, though, the empire and economically, they just kind of fall and then they get up again and then mm. they fall again and it's kind of up and down the entire yeah, There's a brain. bit like a wave, a tide going in, going in and out. Um, uh, so Nikiforos is trying to deal with the crisis and also uh, there is, we are told that he tries to improve his education as well. So at night, he is trying to improve his literacy. Um, and in fact, during his reign, he passes, he introduces several laws. Um, I mean, the, the quite minor thing, minor adjustments, I suppose. So, like, one is about spousal insanity that you can actually remarry if your spouse goes insane. Um, and there's another one about. Uh, he reintroduces a law where um, after the verdict of death for a crime, you have to wait 30 days to allow for any extra evidence or rethinking of the punishment. 
to be applied before the execution is carried out. Um, so there's an element of the humanism at work uh, at the time. And he's also responsible for renovating the monastery of Peripletos mm. in Constantinople. So he is doing things. And, he, and there is an element of he's definitely trying to sort out the situation. But I think the main trouble for Nicky Forrest is that he's too old by this point. He's in his, he was in his late 70s by this point, um, having been born in the first decade of the yeah. uh, century. Yeah, but um, you you mentioned that that it it does it's not much happening during this reign, and which is one of the reasons why it's so overlooked. But it seemed when we talked about him now that it's quite a lot happening. Mm. After all, that it's not as irrelevant as you think it might yeah. be. Um, which which is why I found it uh, such an interesting topic to look into. That mm, there were there were all of these sorts of. Uh, Nicophorus does this and this happens and so on. That sort of just get. You know, he had a few rebellions and then Alexius got rid of him. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. Um, so let let's talk about how he fell. Um, yeah. So Nicophorus, an old man by this point, um, needed a successor, and he decided to appoint his nephew. A man called Nikephoros uh, Synodenos, um, who was his well nephew, as I said. Did Alexius was the throne at this point? Was he um, disappointed Alexios, that he wasn't appointed? So Alexios was plotting. So this is in the ten eighty. This is in ten eighty, and it, I think it's clear that uh, Alexios and his brother and his mum, uh, Anna Delasenin, were plotting to take the throne from Nikiforos. But was it was kind of hoping that he would be appointed himself as the successor? I don't think so, because Alexios wasn't actually related to Nikiforos III. Um, but the real, the real thing that kind of... Uh, uh, helps out Alexios quite a lot is that by appointing his own nephew as his successor, this also booted out of the succession for uh, his wife's son, Constantine Ducas, which she was very worried about because she expected him to become the next emperor and also thought the same thing when Alexios took power. Um, so she was pushed into the camp of the Komnemnoi against Nikiforos. So um, it was a real uh, Game of Thrones going on. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, some historians have seen this as a stupid move on Nikiforos's part, but at the same time, he is appointing a successor, and his uh, Nikiforos Synodenos was, he was young. But he was still, um, he would have been able to take over the empire without needing a regency or anything. So he was, at least in Nikiforos the Third's eyes, a reliable successor to him, more reliable than 
Constantine Ducas would have been because he would have been about six years old at that point. So um, practically, it was the right move to do. Um, it just politically was a bit of a disaster because now you have this even larger coalition of forces growing against him. And uh, then in 1080, you have the rebellion of Alexios Komnemnos's, uh brother-in-law, uh, Nikiforos Melissanos, as I say. Everyone's called Nikiforos. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets Turkish support and starts uh, his revolt in Anatolia and marches towards Constantinople. Um, so he's doing a little bit what Nikiforos uh, III did a few years earlier. Uh, and Alex, um, Alexios is asked to uh, defeat Melissanos, but he refuses on the grounds that he is his brother-in-law. And so Nikiforos sends a force to stop him, but they only get as far as the opposite shore before they turn back. Again, it's an issue of morale yeah, uh, because the Turks are still there and Turks are, in, are the main component of Melissanos' forces. Um, and then the slaves of um, Nikephoros, Boreal and Germanos, they catch wind of Alexios's plot and they've had their eyes on him for a while and then apparently they are sort of on the threshold of having them arrested when Alexios uh, escape, uh, they are told that this is going to happen, they escape to Adrianople, they rebel and then they march on Constantinople and uh, Nikiforos arranges the defences of the city. He has uh, troops from a place called Coma, a Varangian guard, and also uh, German mercenaries. And it's the German mercenaries that let Alexios into the capital uh, on the 1st of April, 1081. And, and then, it, then it goes a bit... Um, awry for Alexios in some ways. Um, although uh, Nikiforos tries to abdicate in favour of Melissanos, but that gets intercepted by um, one of Alexios's friends, a man called George Paleologus. Uh, um, something, something I want to... Before, and then, before oh, yes. you go on, I want, I want to ask because I, I want to compare back to ancient Rome again, like I've done previously this episode. Mm. But how important, if you wanted to get thrown, if you wanted to become emperor in the Byzantines, was it important to have the army and the Varangian guard on the side, like it was when the, the Praetorian guards basically were in charge of who became emperor? Was this a case in the Byzantines as well? Did it, was it important to have an army and the Varangian guard on your side? I would say it was as important for the medieval Romans to have the army on their side as it was for the ancient Romans. So like uh, Augustus and Hadrian and so on. Um, Because um, the army and because the Byzantines were were the Romans, they had this sort of murky idea of succession. The army was always important. I mean, one could perhaps argue that 
the Byzantines had taken a few more steps to try and limit who could become emperor. So you don't have the situation that you have in the third century yeah. where any Tom, Dick and Harry is able to proclaim themselves emperor. Mm-hmm. It's best um, to buy the throne at this point. So, uh, so some emperors like Constantine the Seventh, they introduce an idea called being purple born, so born in the imperial palace. Um, lineage is still very important, and also it's in the Byzantine Empire that you get dynasties that last longer than one or two generations. So, like for Constantine the Great, his dynasty lasted three generations: his father, him, and uh, his sons. But um, for someone like, uh, well, Alexios, for instance, uh, there's him, his son, his grandson, and then his great-grandson. So that's four generations. Uh, And the previous dynasty, the Macedonian dynasty, they uh, had um, six or seven generations. Uh, Basil, uh, Leo, uh, Constantine, Romanus, Basil, and then Theodora. So, um, yeah, uh, dynasties are able to last a lot longer. So the army is still very important. So is that the reason why Alexius succeeded? Because the army believed in him? Believed yes. in him was uh, under Alexius is a very good example that he's able to rally elements of the army and uh, uh, aristocratic friends of his um, but he's also able to, and is also able to bribe his way into Constantinople through the mm. German mercenaries. But th- this is where it becomes quite interesting. In that, when Alexios uh, enters the wall and breaches into Constantinople, his forces start looting the city, and so essentially he loses control of his army. Um, and while this is happening, Nikiforus's troops, the Varangian Guard and the men of Coma, they, um, under his retainers, uh, Nikiforus, Paleologus, and uh, his two slaves, they're able to actually organize the Varangian Guard and men of Coma back into their formations. Hmm. Whereas Alexios has basically lost complete control over his army and only has his relatives about him. Mm. And it's only because they managed to successfully uh, negotiate with Nikiforus to abdicate Mm. that Nikiforus doesn't just brush Alexios's forces Mm. aside. Um, So uh, what happens is Nikiforus and Alexios start negotiating and um, Nikiforus comes up with the idea that he will adopt Alexios as his successor and also make him senior emperor uh, which is actually Alexios accepts this idea but his father-in-law John Ducas uh, the same John Ducas that Nikiforus had uh, um fought with together at the Battle of Zompos Bridge um, six years ago, uh, seven years ago. Um, he, ref- he refuses 
and he makes Alexios force Nikiforce to only surrender if he abdicates and make him his successor. And so what, ha- what it's happens? A, it's a um, determined effort by John and the Dukas family to make sure that um, Nikiforce is gone. What happens um, to Nikiforce after he abdicates the throne and Alexius takes over? Yeah, so so uh, uh, Nikiforce is left with the the um, unpleasant uh, decision as to should he abdicate um, or does he let his troops unleash themselves on the forces of Alexios and slaughter them? Um, and I think uh, Nikiforce makes the perhaps the, the best decision for the empire and decides to abdicate. So he is escorted he takes off his imperial regalia and he is escorted to um, St. Sophia, the cathedral of Constantinople, uh, where he is tonsured as a monk and then enters his monastery of Peripoletos, uh, which is where he dies later that year. Is he still buried there or can, can people still visit his grave there? Um, I don't think he is buried there. Uh, I don't think we know where he's buried. Actually, um, we know he's dead. We know he's dead, uh, but um, yes, um, or maybe it's not. Dead. It's not really said where he's buried or how he dies necessarily. Mm. Presumably through old age. Is this um, is this very loose? The sources on him. Yes. It, um, He's last, men- he's last mentioned as becoming a monk and then sort of um, just fades out. Mm. Um, and then we know that by the following year he is dead. Uh, there's a document that says um, something to that effect. But, um, but yeah, so by the end of 1081, Nikos III has died in... Uh, monastic exile in Constantinople. What would um, you say his legacy is? In a sense? And, and something before you go on, I want to ask, do you think if Alexis had failed and, the, and, and we had another emperor, do you think we still would have the Crusades or do you think the Crusades would never happen if Alexis never had... Those are two very interesting questions. Um, why try the Crusades one first? Um, I think... I think we would have had a crusade. Would have happened eventually, anyway, because although Alexios was quite important in really stoking up support for an expedition to the east, Western Europe itself was becoming very interested and concerned over what was happening in the east and Jerusalem. Was it during? Was it before? Was it, I believe it was around ninety years before Alexius that they lost Jerusalem. So it was oh, before uh, Jerusalem hadn't been in Christian hands since it was lost to the Arabs in the seventh century. Hmm. But uh, in Western Europe, um, the idea of retaking Jerusalem or 
um, and making the pilgrim trail to Jerusalem safe again, which it had now become unsafe because of the Turks, uh, had become a big concern. And also in Western Europe, a lot of changes had happened and developments occurred during the 11th century that allowed the uh, uh, Catholic Europeans to sort of be interested in what was happening in um, the Middle East and sort of have the resources to do something about it. So uh, places, it was richer, it was a bit uh, more organized, um, changes in sort of actual, uh, there have been reforms in the Catholic Church, sort of um, ways of thinking about um, uh, um, sort of philosophical and theological thought had also Mm. developed a little bit. Um, So there's all these changes going on in the West that I, which would make me say that the Crusades would have happened um, not necessarily in 1095 as it did, but I think it would have gotten there anyway. And maybe, uh, although, say, imagine uh, Alexis had been killed during this uh, takeover, as it was certainly possible, um, you know, maybe someone like uh, Nikiforos Synodenos, who would have become the next emperor, uh, he may have done something like that anyway. And we do know that Michael VII had organized a expedition with the Pope, very similar to uh, what would have happened with the First Crusade uh, in the 1070s. So both East and West were thinking about this. Mm. Uh, so I think, yes. Uh, as to the legacy of Nikiforos III, um, I, hmm. well, in one way, I would say not much because, hmm. you know, you could, one could read a history of Byzantium and never make mention of Nikiforos III. Yeah. Um, but, hmm. in a way, he seemed to be a decent kind of emperor. Yeah. I mean, he, he was by no means sort of great or even no. perhaps more stand out, but I wouldn't say he was necessarily bad, although he did have to do some uh, things that made things worse, like he devalued the currency even further. And also, he, because it was handing out so much money and honours, the honours system, mm. which had already sort of um, become under strain, was sort of pushed into um, uh, media. What do you say? It was a media. A, yeah. a become emperor moribund. Um, yes, I, th- I think that's probably the fairest thing to say about him. Um, but he did manage to through Alexis the first and mm. his command of the armies. He did manage to put down every rebellion. That was formed against him, except mm. the last two. Um, he he started to... Uh, one thing I haven't covered, but is perhaps worth mentioning, is that he managed to... Do you remember how I mentioned that in Syria, local Armenians had sort of taken over that peer part and yeah. sort of running things themselves? Yeah. Nikiforos managed to get them to accept him as their emperor. Mm. 
So officially, they were part of the empire because of him. And I mean, although it didn't come to anything, if, say, his expedition that he organized against the Turks had actually managed to got, get underway and managed to push out the Turks in certain areas, it may have been a, may have had a part in some sort of reconquest of at least parts of Anatolia. Hmm. Unfortunately, none of this happened because of the state of the army and um, the empire, but it w- he was doing the right moves to set up a recovery of Anatolia. Yeah. Um, it's just a shame that none of them came into fruition. Mm. Um, so I think is, I would actually, I mean, plenty of people I'm sure would dispute this, but I think maybe he is a, a small step along the way towards the recovery of the empire in this period. I mean, it'd be, I mean, even for Alexius the first, it'd be ten years into his reign yeah. before the military crisis was over, and then another ten years before things administratively and economically started to improve. Isn't it the first or third one of the reasons why the military has a crisis in the first place? Since there's, I believe, if the military has been in a decent shape, they wouldn't have had the crusades, have the need for crusades if the military um, was pretty. No, was, he, he uh, inherits a he inherits a sinking ship, uh, Nikiforos. Um, previous emperors like Constantine the Tenth, um, Constantine the Ninth, uh, had really weakened the army. Um, Constantine the Ninth is less sure because it was still capable, but he was demobilizing troops. And I think it's definitely Constantine the Tenth where veterans were being um, forced to retire from the army so they didn't have to pay for them. Um, mm. Troops weren't being paid properly or equipped properly. Um, basically, the funding for the army had been, um, can't say exactly how much, but um, have been slashed. So, um, which is why when <laughs> Nicky Forrest was, say, governor of Antioch, he was being given these raw recruits that could barely even mount horses and lead them into battle. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that if the Byzantine armor had been better, that, that the crusades never would have happened. You wouldn't have um, needed that crusade. Hmm. Or at least be more focused on Jerusalem. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, that's not to say it wasn't focused on Jerusalem, but one of the other reasons was for the Crusades was to alleviate the plight of the Eastern Christians against yeah. um, people like the Turks, which ties into the fall of Anatolia and Armenia into Turkish hands. And, of course, if you want, that you saw, I think we covered the basic, I think. Yeah, I, I think we've got done a fairly nice run through of Nikiforos mm. uh, and, and of his cor- life. Of course, if you want to continue the story of the Byzantine, we did an episode 23, we did about Alexius Tonemnus, his successor. Hmm. So we, I wish I would highly recommend, because as you know, if you listen to the episode already, that is what led up to the Crusades 
in the final as we talked about here, the elections is the reason we have the crusades. So that's it. if you want to know how the crusade happened and what caused the crusades to happen, I would highly recommend checking out the episode. Thank you so much for coming back, and it's been a pleasure to have you on. Oh, no do you, problem. It's, do you been, have... uh, uh, it's been nice to talk about this uh, topic I've been researching. Yeah, no worries. And do you have anything you want to promote, any social media or anything you want me to plug in this in the description? Um. Uh, well, only my, I only have my YouTube channel to um, promote in that. Uh, well, if you enjoy Byzantine and uh, Roman history. Uh... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have a look. I'm sure there's something that will um, catch your eye. Uh, I look into detail about Byzantine history and... uh, And you're currently working on uh, the 3rd century... Uh, yes. Um, currently, I'm. I've been uh, releasing some videos about third century, and uh, myself and another historian, Dr. Byron Waldron, uh, from Sydney University, have been talking about third century emperors and assessing them. Mm. Um, so a bit of bit of history and a bit of fun. Uh, but I've also been doing other things like uh, looking at the Battle of Clydeon, looking at the reign of Constantine V, uh, and a few other things. So uh, if you're interested, have a look. And congratulations. I said it before in the recording, but I'm going to say it here as well. Congratulations on 10K. Thank you very much. And my name is Alan. And if I just want to say before we go that if you're here for Easter for Daniel, that's fantastic. But we will please subscribe to the podcast. We would love to have you around and we just definitely some episodes that i think you would find interesting we got some great historians coming up mm-hmm. and uh, we are available on apple Podcasts, social media on instagram and well that aged well and you can find us wherever you can find podcasts my name is alan please like share and subscribe and i'll see you next time <laughs>